Welcome back to the Planet X Cinema Podcast. This is a special episode in the series we call Now Showing, where we talk about the movies that are coming up in our live screens. Our next screening is January 25th, Final Fridays at Kunstler Brewing in San Antonio, Texas, where we're showing Stay Tuned. And so we wanted to take a minute and talk through that film. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the format of our show, uh, most weeks we take your hypothetical movie title suggestions and flesh them out into righteous trash cinema. Uh, but we do take some time off occasionally to uh, talk about what we're actually showing at the live screenings. Uh, and we do that right here on the now showing uh, episodes. Um, so without further ado, let's jump into stay tuned. I'm Drew Hicks. I'm Blair Hicks and I am a champion for this film. I love stay tuned. Stay Great tuned. Flick. One of my all-time favorites, and I, we don't need to go too far into this. I think we mentioned this before, but when we were picking out the schedule, it re- one of the we kind of do a bracket-type thing. We put films against each other. It came down to Stay Tuned versus Mom and Dad Save the World, another great film, similar vibe, but sci-fi instead of Satanism. <laughs> like I sort of uh, really argued for Stay Tuned. I, I think it's like Amazon Women on the Moon with a plot. <laughs> Amazon Women on the Moon, top 10 favorite films of all time for me. But I agree. I think Mom and Dad Save the World is is super samey in some ways. And we can talk about what those are. Um, but they're both kind of like weird parents go on romps and end up becoming cool in the eyes of their children with some wackiness. And you're totally right. Mom and Dad Save the World is very sci-fi. This one is kind of vaguely horror-esque, like kind of Hellraiser-ish or something. If uh, so you they're, like, they're a little bit different, but if you like one, you'll like the other. I guarantee that. That's it would, it would be a great double feature. At some point in the future, if we have that opportunity, maybe we'll do it. I hope, I definitely hope in the future we show Mom and Dad Save the World because it is one of... It's wild. Mutual. Well, look, at, at the top here, is it, is it worth... Well, let me say this first off. We're going to talk a whole lot about Stay Tuned in this episode. If you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled, do not listen to this episode. If you don't care or you have seen it, then give it a listen. Uh, and some of this information will actually go over in the in probably uh, in the um, pre-show for the for the live screening. So, Sure. Um, and is, I'm it, going- is, is it worth at the top here going over kind of the plot to Stay Tuned? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm and I'm going to ask you politely to be the referee on this particular now showing because I just gush about this film. So okay. just give me the hand wave or like, you know, the, you know, the whatever the Blair is um, Skype, Skype version of, of pulling the hook on me. Like sure. if, I get, if I get too into. Yeah, basically the plot is um, uh, John Ritter plays the patriarch of a family, nuclear family. Um, and um, he is addicted to television. He used to be um, a, a minor athlete. He was a fencer, which is kind of strange. Um, <laughs> he now sells plumbing equipment in Seattle, but he's addicted to television. He ignores his wife. He ignores his children. Um, and he is addicted to TV. So that's who your protagonist is. The overarching plot of the film is that um, a demon uh, named Spike the Mephistopheles of the cathode ray, they call him. Uh, I love it. I love that shit. So good. Has created a system in which he finds people who are addicted to television, sells them a satanic television, which has 666 channels that only shows Satan, <laughs> satanic or, or at least morbid pro- programming. And it, it uses a giant dish to suck these people into TV. They have 24 hours to survive existing in satanic television. If they survive, 
they get to go back to the real world. If they don't, they go to hell. And that's that's the plot. That's, that's it. That's the plot. Yeah. Um, some great character names. You mentioned Spike, but uh, Roy and Helen Nabel is our is our protagonists and their children, uh, Daryl and Diane, which are all just like choice white bread 80s names like it's so good very good uh, eugene levy's in it as crowley who's another demon uh it's very very good casting we do want to get out of the way at the top of this uh the demon spike is played by jeffrey jones uh he was in a bunch of cool movies he had a bunch of cool roles uh he's a real piece of shit human who did some really really fucked up stuff he pleaded guilty to some stuff if you want to go look into it look into it we're not here to be jeffrey jones apologists i really don't want to talk about what he did because it's fucking gross um and it just sucks so we just want to get that out of the way at the top it's disappointing. Knowing what you know about him, though, actually won't ruin the movie for you. He's not even in a ton of it. He is in the very final act a lot. Yeah. This Other is one of those that, instances. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say uh, he's really not in it. You see him at the beginning. They cut to him very briefly for these really short scenes during the movie. Mm. Um, but until the last act, he's not in a lot of it which is interesting but he did take a lot of those roles so you know yeah and look i I don't think the shitty things that he did in his personal life are a reason to avoid watching him in movies like stay tuned or ferris bueller's day off like you know if you're able to still enjoy those movies then then you ought to be able to do that so yeah but it's it's something to acknowledge but as long as we're talking about casting i want to talk about one of the reasons you're talking talking about john ritter I, I want to talk about more than just John Ritter, but yeah, let's talk about John Ritter. It's wanna, such good casting. It's such I, fucking great casting. I want to talk about how smart this movie is. People think that this is a dumb movie. It is not. It's the opposite of a dumb movie. This is a brilliant movie. Ostensibly, you think it's a movie that's a critique of brain dead television, right? Mm. People Mm. that just waste their time watching brain dead TV. Who do you cast as your leads? You cast the male lead from Three's Company and the female lead from Mork and Mindy. It's It's fucking fucking smart. And it's not only lost on people watching it today who don't watch bad old television like I do, but I think it definitely in 92, this this is not a film aimed for kids. And we're going to come back to that too, but the casting is so good. John Ritter is criticized often for kind of always playing two-dimensional characters. It's exactly what this movie needs though. He's perfect. He's, he, the, he, the, he lets the movie be funny around him. He doesn't go for big laughs. They don't give him a lot of jokes. It's kind of interesting. Pam Dauber Dauber is also amazing. I just want to say she is a person that never really had a big acting career, and she's fantastic in this. And she's also married to our boy, uh, Mr. Shoop from Summer School. Yeah, so it's 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 good casting on a bunch of levels. One, they're great actors. They're really comfortable on set. Like they step into roles. They you know they don't have to like just like on sitcoms. They don't have to do a ton of characterization because they're kind of the butt of all the jokes. The jokes are the hellish TV show things that are going on around them in the situations they find themselves in. Um, that having been said, I think uh, uh, Pam especially does a great job. Uh, of doing like the the wife in distress and like getting really frustrated like she's awesome to watch she's very um, very good it's, she it's, does- it's very very good casting because 
not only are they great and they're great in their roles, but it's meta casting, right? It's exactly. Casting. It's casting that informs the audience and the plot of the film and they're good actors. And like, that doesn't always work. Like sometimes they try to do like cheeky reversals in casting. Like, like De Niro famously, I think kind of became a caricature of himself where he started like playing a goofy version of De Niro in movies. And they're like, get it. It's De Niro farting. And it's like, okay, but I don't really come on. Like, yeah, it's making not, fun of him for being a tough guy in the '70s. This is different. This is like you know John Ritter from TV. This is a movie about John Ritter obsessed with TV who gets sucked into TV, and and actually there is a, a scene where he gets sucked into Three's Company. Into Three's and Company. Like, Holy and he just, shit, that's good. <laughs> and he just turns to the camera and screams, and you go like, "Yeah, obviously that made every trailer, but it's actually legitimately funny." It's a good joke. It's a it's funny a, joke. It's a it's a great joke. Um. I'm glad they didn't do the same thing with Pam Dauber because it wouldn't work. See, it wouldn't. Yeah, unless they could have gotten Robin Williams to do a walk-on, which right. would have been amazing. But well, whatever. in this film, in this film, and we'll get to this a little bit later. If they, it would have been great to see a satanic Mork and Mindy, though. You know, <laughs> like that. That would be really great, right? I yeah. just like the idea that being trapped in, in television where all the shows are about satan and demons three's company is not it's just three's company that's yeah, a funny john joke. ritter's hell that's it yeah, like, yeah. Just, <laughs> and it, you know and he, he has no he has no lines just a terrified scream and i that's think it's great. really funny we that's talked great. about the kids a little bit and i kind of want to get into this thing that we've talked about about uh films that are ostensibly kids films this is not a kids film the only reason i think that there are children in this film is to get kids to want to watch this movie because mm. the kids don't, they do service the plot, but not in a way that couldn't be done by like a brother-in-law. Like everything that they do is sort of in minor service of the plot. It doesn't matter that they're the children of the family. Um, they're, serviceable kid actors they don't really accomplish much they don't have character arcs um i like the i like the son i think he he does a great job he's good he basically he he he's a good little actor i don't really know what happened to him he does he does the opening exposition Mm, he's um, the narrator yeah and then he is the guy that figure he's the character who figures out how to interact with his parents while they're trapped in satanic television. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he services the plot. The daughter doesn't much, but again, as a movie that sort of breaks down television, you have to have a nuclear family. Sure. And and so I think that just the fact that it's a mother, father, son, daughter, all American white bread family, just the fact that they're there sort of works. And before I forget, like, this is a perfect movie for Eugene Levy, by the way. I just That's want to say great. he's yeah. Eugene Levy does Eugene Levy in this movie and it's great. But so what I was going to say though, is I, I want to push back a little bit. Cause I, I do think that this movie came out like, okay. A lot of times we talk about some of the problematic aspects of righteous trash cinema, and it tends to be things like language and representation and just tone deafness. Right. But one thing I think was really good from the era of like Canon films in the eighties right? Is that there were very clearly films meant for adults that were like cartoonishly violent and horrible and bad things are happening. And then there seemed to be a comfort in the late eighties and early nineties with a degree of, of terrifying action um, that still got a PG rating, right? Or, or maybe a PG 13, but like truly great PG 13 movies 
need to be a little bit scary and need to be a little bit monstrous and need to be a little bit violent. And to me, I couch state, like I think on, on the one end of that is like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Like there's some action in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. If you're, if you're a little bitty, bitty kid, like some of the scenes with the ant and the bees and the getting eaten by your parents and cereal, like some of that stuff is kind of nightmarish. It's not gruesome, right? But, but it is little, horrific. It is horrific in its own way, right? It's terrifying. It's, but it's thrilling, right? At the end of the movie, it's thrilling. And then you step into something like, uh, I don't know, like The Gate or Stay Tuned, which has a little bit, it's like a little bit weirder and a little bit stranger. And even like The Gate has some legitimately terrifying monster moments that like, it's still thrilling, but it's terrifying. And it's not inappropriate for a child. Something right. like something like Hellraiser or, you know, there are movies that like clearly cr- cross a line. And like, there is a sweet spot for films like this. And I think Stay Tuned came out at a time when I think you could sell Stay Tuned as a kid's movie. I think they did sell it. No, they absolutely did. Whether or not it is a kid's movie, they definitely sold it that way, and a lot of kids saw it. Right. I I mean, we saw it. It came out when I was 11 or 12, so you would have been about eight. Yeah, and I loved it. Yeah, And we loved it. Um, I think part of the reason didn't, didn't I get all it, the jokes, <laughs> didn't get all the jokes, didn't get all the parodies. And we'll get into the parodies later because it is when I said at the top, it's kind of like Amazon women on the moon with a plot is it, it Amazon women on the moon is a send up of television. It's yeah. a send up of television. This is a send up of television, but it has an act structure as opposed to just skit after Man, skit after skit. How cool, right? how cool is the mechanism too, by which they're, so they're jumping channels all the time. And the mechanism by which they're doing this is this like comically large remote control that has like a million buttons on it. Well, and also just walls of static, right? It's there's great. two ways, there's two ways you can navigate through channels and it's, you're absolutely right. They're great mechanics. One is you just have to find a big hole of static. Yeah. You gotta you run far know, enough. You don't know what, <laughs> you don't know where that's going to take you, but you can leap through it. If right. however, you take your remote in and there's a couple of characters that do that and our main mm-hmm. characters end up with a remote spike when he enters at the end whichever jones ends he obviously has one then you can actually control while right. you're inside of it now the drama of the movie or at least the stakes of the film come from the fact that the nables are surviving and right. spike is in charge there's a really interesting character who um is introduced the first time you go to the office of television by the way it's called television so fucking good. Um, that would have, have been a good title. It really, I, I, I swear that had to be a working title at one point. Oh, by the way, this film was offered to Tim Burton and he actually had to leave it to go do Batman Returns. Yeah, I turned it down. Uh, but the director, Peter Himes, he like fought for this one. He, he had this one on the books for a long time. Like he, he like threatened to not do any other projects. Like this was his baby. He really, really wanted to make this movie. I did not know that. I wanted to talk about Peter Hyams and I wanted to ask you a technical question about how films were made. Sure. Basically what I wanted to say about Peter Hyams is like, we Peter Hyams, by the way, director of uh, 2010, Cap- End of Days, Outland, Time Cop. Capricorn One. And what I was going to say, we showed Time Cop um, mm-hmm. in November of last year. Um, but in order, he made these films. Stay tuned, Time Cop, Sudden Death, The Relic, and End of Days. I mean, this is a guy after our own hearts. And this is kind of an interesting film in his catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, agree. I don't yeah. I don't think he did another comedy. He certainly didn't do another like 
family film. Um, so that's kind of interesting. But what I wanted to ask you, um, and I don't know how interesting this the answer will be, but I'm mm. legitimately curious. He's the director of this film, but he's also the director of photography of this film. What really? Is, what what is the difference? Because I know you know, and that you have some professional experience. Oh, sure. So I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, great question. Uh, in, in movie making, there are like, you know, there's different departments, there's different jobs, things get cut up different ways. Typically, and, and those roles, by the way, have changed and evolved over time. So, uh, you know, we, we tend to think about the director as like the big boss in the chair, right? Steven Spielberg with, with the megaphone. Um, that really comes out of like the, the, the old golden era of Hollywood, like 40s and 50s thing, uh, which was really more run by the producers. Um, and, and the idea that in the, in the 60s and 70s, you have this thing called our auteur theory, right? Or author theory. Uh, this is where, where the same where, person kind of does everything, right? They well, yeah, you, and direct and sort of. This is where we have our modern conception of like the the director as author is like Kubrick and uh, Spielberg and George Lucas and James Cameron and Ridley Scott and a lot of these guys that come out of the '60s and '70s. Uh, they take over production to the extent that they have a hand in everything. They're not just directing the actors, which is traditionally what they would do, right? Writer would write the script, they'd get on set, and you would just kind of, you know, read, and the director would give you feedback and say, this is the kind of performance I'm looking for. Now, he might have a hand in the set dressing, or he might look into the camera, you know, or uh, Alfred Hitchcock famously, uh, he only loved pre-production. So he would, he loved writing scripts and he loved planning movies. When they got on set, he wouldn't even look in the camera. Um, and famously, in fact, like told off one of his director photographies who, who asked him, like, do you want to look in the camera? And he said, does it look like the storyboard? And he said, yes. And he said, then I'm going to take a nap. Does it have anything to do with the fact that the crop of filmmakers that you just sort of listed were very influenced by Hitchcock and Kurosawa and kind yes. of people it has that- everything to do with that? Just curious. I'm 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 interested to hear the the, the, no, no. the end of your answer. I don't want to interrupt. Well, yeah. So so that has changed over time, and and those that crop of directors has since influenced a lot of directors that you know they want it edited a certain way, they want it shot a certain way, that they're the author of the film. The director is the the core, the locus that the film sort of rotates around whether or not your film is run that way or not. And certainly a lot of films today, a lot of that power has been stripped away from the director and is back into the hands of big production houses and big producers. Um, and then there's exceptions to all that. So that's kind of how the directors change. The director, director of photography is interesting. So, uh, if you ever watch a French film, it'll say a uh, maison scene. Uh, that's the, the French word for the cinematographer or the director of photography. A lot of, a lot of times those three terms are used interchangeably. Um, the idea of a director of photography is the person who's responsible for the, for the way everything looks on camera. Okay. So they're, they're either by themselves or in conjunction with a director or producer, they're selecting the camera that's being used. They're selecting the film stock that's being used, which is going to affect how the film actually looks, right? They're affecting what's called color timing and processing of the film so that it, you know, the, the shadows look extra dark or the, the whole film looks blue or the whole film has kind of a green and yellow tint to it, right? They're working with production designers in the art department to choose the, the way the sets are dressed and the way they're lit. And under them is probably a lighting director who's just making those decisions for lights, um, a production designer, uh, you know, uh, you have electricians and grips and all kinds of people. But you can think of the director of photography as one of the four or five big roles 
on the production side of a film, you know, if we think behind the camera, not actors and stuff, sure. the director and the director is more or less in charge of running the whole show and, and coming up with the style and the look and the feel and the beats and how things are actually going to play out in the film writ large. You have the director of photography who's deciding all the visual stuff. Uh, you have the editor, right. Who's cutting the film together. Uh, who's taking all the different shots and selecting which ones go together. Um, the producers are really the financers, right? So they're the ones raising the money and putting the movie together. But, and, and there's a whole bunch of other roles, right? Sound department, all kinds of other junk. But there are directors who take a heavier hand in certain aspects of that, right? So like, uh, you know, especially directors who came, like James Cameron, right? James Cameron came up as a camera guy. He loves cameras. He builds cameras. He, you know, he's a special effects guy. And he kind of famously will just jump into the seat and operate the camera on some of the shots because he, he knows how to do it. He's competent at it. He knows how he wants it to look. But for a director to also be credited as a director of photography is extremely unusual. I'm well, really shocked to see that. Well, that's what odd. If, and you I think about, if you think about just the division of labor, you've got to run the camera department and the lighting department at the same time that you're directing actors against the script. Well, that's, and that's to bring it back, think, think about this film where I will go down the list of parodies. It is a mile long. This film has a million looks. Like, yes. Yeah. It's that that it intrigued me enough to go like I'm going to ask Drew because he will actually know the answer to this, and that makes that even more interesting to me because this film goes from like look to look to look. Um, but you know, Peter, it's interesting because Peter Heim is he's a guy who came from mostly sci-fi sets. I would say like that's certainly that's like where his success was, like Outland 2010, uh, Capricorn One, right? Like these are like pretty complicated sets with lots of weird lighting and, you know, fiddly knobs and stuff for people. Oh God, you know what? That's why that office, that office with the giant um, scoreboard and everything. Yeah, totally. Giant red and blue lights. Like Uh, this guy guy knew sci-fi. I guarantee you like, and that's why that looks so good. I bet. Well, God. and it's fun. And I would, I would guess, okay, because we mentioned the parodies and I want to go through them because I, I want to talk about a couple of the parodies that are really especially good. I do but too. I have, a, I I have would, the entire list. We'll do it. I would be shocked if they didn't bring in, like, I, I, would want, I want to go through the credits of this film and I, want to, I need to rewatch the film with a really fine tooth comb. I would be shocked if they didn't visit existing sets and use existing shows, crews for some of these scenes. Like I, there's some of them that are so different visually and stylistically that it wouldn't surprise me if they came in and like somebody else operated, somebody else did the lighting. Like, it's funny. This actually leads me to a point I started and didn't finish about another character in this film, which um, when when we're first introduced to the mechanics of Hellavision, mm-hmm. um, it's Eugene Levy who is a former stand-up comedian. He's dead. Uh, great role for Eugene Levy. Um, but he's, he's like Spike's lieutenant, and he's bringing a new lieutenant in. Mm-hmm. And he's showing him this is how it works. He's doing exposition for us, right? Yeah. This new lieutenant is a really fascinating character because he, he tells Spike, his first line really to Spike is, um, this is really crude, basically. And Spike goes, what are you, a film student? And he goes, yeah, USC. And, and he goes like, well, what, what's, what's your problem? And he, he said, um, he, he's like, he, oh, he said, oh, you don't have the stomach for it or something like that. And he says, oh, I got the stomach for it. There's just no subtext to what you do. And in a, bro- <laughs> and 
in a brilliant, in a brilliant, and again, this is why this movie is smart. Spike's answer is, I, we are making entertainment for Satan and he doesn't care about subtext. He wants to watch people suffer. And it completely hands, hand wipes any criticism anybody has about this movie about being just a bunch of one-dimensional TV show parodies is that the, uh, the movie says there's no subtext. And then when you watch the movie, it's full of nothing but subtext. So as, as hard as Peter fought, Peter Himes fought for this, uh, this movie to get made, I bet you anything that came up in one of the pitches, one of the revisions where they were like, look, Peter, we'd love to make the movie, but what's the fucking subtext? And he's like, this is Satan. There's no subtext with Satan. <laughs> Satan just want, and, and Spike says it, Satan just wants to watch people die. There's no subtext. It's and great, so- though. It's it's because it makes it makes the movie a romp, right? It's like there's there's a long periods in this movie where like the plot isn't really getting advanced, but you don't care. No, because it's it it also it works like a road movie. It's they're yeah. on a they're on a journey, right? And that's, and that's this is how we'll get into I think how we'll get into the parodies because the parodies are just sort of the journey that they go on right well and it's it's a really good pacing trick because like once or twice i know once in the movie they definitely do it but like they almost do like a montage where they just like knock out like eight, eight or ten real quick oh yeah they and do so it like, three or four times yeah and it's good because it it not only gets you a lot of laughs you're like you're laughing every minute because like there's a new parody coming up it's a good pacing mechanism because it helps justify the set the conceit at the beginning that they're going to be in there for 24 hours so it's exactly like a road movie where we get a nice scene of them talking and then like we play some music and we show the tires rolling and we see them at night we see them at day we see them stop we see them get back in the car like it conveys time but it's doing double duty in this movie because it's also getting jokes in well and again like the whole thing there's no subtext in the film it's like it's actually great subtext because the film isn't about how tv ruins your life the the film is about how devoting all of your time to mindless entertainment makes you forget about reality. And it does it in a movie about being trapped in satanic television. That's just very clever to me. And so another reason why I was like, we got to show stay tuned because (laughs) it works on just a, I'm having a good time watching this movie level. But if it, it, it's one of those movies, if you watch it, you go like, some really talented people made a movie that's way too clever for its own good. And that may be why it wasn't as successful as it should have been. It also opened against some really big movies. So that, yeah. yeah, And and we can, yeah, we can talk about kind of what the film landscape looked like, but I want to get into these parodies. Cause like I do, everybody remembers from the movie is the really, really horrible parodies a lot. And like, yeah, okay. it, It might be a clever movie, but like, I love how stupid the parodies are. I, they're, they have to be instantly some, grokkable and they have to re- like, here's here's the theme and you're going to pick up on it real quick they're going to take something you know and they're going to make it relate to hell or murder or death and that's yes. it it's just like a pun non-stop like pun-a-thon they start with the very first show that Roy Nabel turns on TV is Three Men and Rosemary's Baby perfect fucking perfect perfect <laughs> and he, he he's like the hell switches channels second parody sadistic hidden videos okay and wait, it's wait, a wait. Cop- well, go, go go i'm sorry i was just gonna say sadistic hidden videos you go like what is that well it's a hidden camera show obviously but it's a policeman who knocks on an old woman's door and it basically tells her that her son has died in a horrific car accident <laughs> and then he's like 
you see that you see that car across the street she's like am i on sadistic hidden videos <laughs> so good there's some that, great ones in there though like uh i mean we, we both love them. like we both uh, love northern overexposure northern overexposure has my favorite line in the film and i am totally biased it's because northern exposure is arguably my favorite television show of all time. Even when I was 10 or 11, I know you remember this, our parents let me stay up late on Wednesday nights so I could watch Northern Exposure. I went to bed at nine instead of eight on Wednesday nights. I love Northern Exposure. Northern Over Northern Overexposure that comes on. It's obviously snowy Alaska field with a fishing day. It says, Northern Overexposure, the story of a New York doctor who moves to Alaska, complains about everything and freezes to death. And you go like, that's pretty good pretty good but there's a bunch man like autopsies the rich and famous you get silencer of the lambs 30 something uh, to life i think is way underrated as a very funny good. parody you get the game um, show you can't win my three sons of bitches i was very- just gonna say okay my three sons of bitches is my runner up to my favorite joke in the, my favorite of the like parody ones but what my three your- my three son of bi- sons of bitches is very 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 funny it comes right after different strokes where two guys just have different types of strokes on a couch. That's so dark. <laughs> I mean, just, he's just But you know, you know, in the fucking, you know, in the fucking writing room when they were coming up with these, they were like, all right, uh, uh, the, uh, Yogi beer. That's funny. Okay. Different strokes. Well, shit, we don't even have to change that one. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to mention this briefly. The, the guys who wrote this film really didn't do anything else. The mm. only thing I could find is that one of them was in the writer's room for Mission Hill, which is mm. one of my favorite cartoons. It's a great show, but didn't have a lead writing credit on any episodes. I can't tell that they really did much work other than stay tuned. Um, that's okay. That's, I mean... If you're gonna make a noise, make a loud noise, it's that Mel Brooks thing, right? <laughs> like you guys wrote Stay Tuned, you know? Um I there's a, a bunch of other parodies. I just want to mention in succession, one of the things I like about this film is that when the credits roll, they tell you what the fall lineup for television is gonna be. And it's Beverly Hills 90666. I love yes. Lucifer, the Golden Ghouls, Murder She Likes. Facts of Life Support, <laughs> the, Fresh Prince of Dar- the Fresh Prince of Darkness, Unmarried with Children, and it ends with maybe my favorite, David Dukes of Hazard. That is my favorite. David Dukes of Hazard is the it's funniest. It's too good, and it's just, it is just a title. It's just a title. They don't do That's it. Amazing. It's amazing. It's just a title. The Exercisist, the Home Shoplifting Channel. Like, it's just hilarious it's just funny there's even a very brief cut where they're in a hockey game and the two teams playing are the angels and the devils like it's funny it's just it is you like you said you can tell when they were writing it they were like let's just throw as much as we can and there's stuff you mentioned that they do the device where they cut three or four times yeah some of them are so quick that they don't make the list of parodies and they're still funny there's one that's um Frankenstein's monster in front of a brick wall like he's at A&E's improv but it's only on camera for like 15 seconds and you go like that's still funny it's still funny so you talked a little bit about uh when this movie came out kind of what it was up against and one of the reasons why maybe it's it's fallen by the wayside I think there's a lot of reasons right um I think I think it was marketed a little weird um 
But uh, I think the, you cannot talk about, so this movie cost uh, about 25, $30 million to make. It made about 10, so a commercial flop. But it came out in August of 1992. Here are the other movies that came out in 1992 in order of their, of their grossingness. Aladdin, The Bodyguard, Home Alone 2, Basic Instinct, Lethal, Lethal Weapon 3, Batman Returns, A Few Good Men, Sister Act, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and fucking Wayne's World. So you're talking about... Wayne's World, a movie which is parodied in this movie. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, you're, but you're talking about, like, dude, Aladdin made 50 or 500 uh, million dollars. I mean, just, I mean, like, take Aladdin out of the equation. How much money did Lethal Weapon 3 make? A fucking, ton, about, right? Yeah, I mean, over $300 million. But, like, Batman Returns, like, every kid, if you can take your kid to the movies over the summer and they can see one movie... Like you're not gonna you're not gonna take a risk on stay tuned. You're gonna take them to Batman or Aladdin. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you're an adult, you're gonna watch Basic Instinct. <laughs> yeah, if you're an adult dragging your kids to the movies, your first pick isn't gonna be stay tuned. No, I mean everybody was watching The Bodyguard. Everybody was watching Basic Instinct. I mean these are classic films. I mean they're Those amazing. Films we're still watching films. today. Like, yeah, that, but this brings up a point which I may have, I think I said on one of the previous podcasts is I do know people who have seen this film. It's not a completely unknown quantity, although it's certainly a lesser known film, but everyone I know who's seen it saw it on video. They rented it. And it's absolutely as a person who worked in a video store in the nineties and I love video store culture. And I'm sure that's partially a product of our times, but also, you and I spent a ton of time in great video stores. Not just Blockbuster and Hollywood, but mom and pop video stores. This was a video store movie, and especially a great movie for kids like us. We weren't officially allowed to watch a lot of horror movies and things like this. This was a movie that you could get your parents to rent because they go like, oh, John Ritter's in this. It's rated PG. The, the cover isn't even terrifying. It's them yeah. in the seats from the you can't win game show, right? Mm-hmm. You turn it over, you go, oh, that, no, nothing horrifying there, you know? And um, then you take it home and watch it, and it's, it's, it's never-ending just Satan. Well, and yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, we talked about, like, the highest-grossing films, right? But, like, this is also the year when, like, My Cousin Vinny came out, White Men Can't Jump came out, Beethoven came out, the one about the dog. Uh, like, there were so many movies. Alien 3 came out. Encino Man came out in 1992. Want to know why nobody saw Mom and Dad Save the World? Came out this year. Came out in 92. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it comes into a super loaded field, which is another reason why when it gets to the video market, like, I think it does a little better when it's sitting on the shelf, right? Because, like... Yeah, it's got a great cover. It's got a good cast. It's one of those movies like you would pick this movie up in 94 and be like, how did I miss? This is like a hell of a movie. Like, Well, and it's also, it's like you go to the video store and you're like, well, I saw Aladdin. I saw The Bodyguard. Right, I saw Lethal right. Weapon 3. I said, what? what? There's a John Ritter comedy? This looks kind of weird. It's like, okay. Um, is that the chick from Mork and Mindy? What the hell is this? <laughs> right. And then, you, you know, and then you take it home and you go like, Oh, at least we, maybe it, maybe it is a movie for precocious kids. I think that's sort of maybe the people who enjoyed it the most. I think we're just like pop culture junkies, I think too. Absolutely. And I think also sketch comedy fans, you know, even as. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, I think the reason I liked it so much is that when we were growing up in the early days of Comedy Central, before it was Comedy Central, it was the Comedy Channel. Before that, it was Ha, which is a horrible name for a 
a television channel, but um, they did not have programming. So it was Saturday Night Live reruns during the day, and it was Monty Python at night. And yeah. like, if you were a kid, lucky enough to be a kid in the late 80s and the early 90s, your brain could get fried on. Oh, and Kids in the Hall, by the way, they showed Kids in the Hall during the day. Um, but like, you know what? That's that's a really good point, Blair. Like it, it, there are a lot of sketch comedy groups like Broken Lizard and you know Kids in the Hall who have made movies, and the movies always carry over an aspect of sketch comedy where like they're playing lots and lots of characters, and there's lots of lots of jokes getting thrown out, and it's okay if they don't land, and there's weird jokes and funny jokes and fart jokes and clever jokes and whatever. This movie, if you're a fan of those kind of movies, I think this is a good movie for you because it's lots of different kinds of humor being thrown in lots of different kinds like this could have been a sketch comedy group movie because there's just so much to do in it there's a different character every 10 seconds if you take the plot out and you make the imagery a little more visceral again you have amazon women on the moon that's what you're watching um it's it's a succession of send-ups of pop culture and it's done really well and really cleverly there is one thing that we haven't mentioned that I think we have well, to when talking about the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, or you can go the other way and ground the film more in reality. And then you have UHF. Oh yeah. And I think that's the first time anyone has ever said grounded in reality and UHF in a sentence before. <laughs> and again, UHF, one of my favorite movies and I would show it at Planet X. I'll the say right now, I would show UHF at Planet X. Again, what point were you going to make? Uh, I was just, I, there's just, there's something about this film that just has to be discussed, which is they do get sucked into a cartoon and Chuck oh, Jones, yeah, it's Chuck the Jones. Chuck Jones oversees the animation. And actually the cartoon is one of the longer sequences and it's a, it's a, one of the sequences where a lot of character development happens. Roy yeah. talks about how he's still attracted to his wife and she's like, I'm a cartoon mouse and that's kind of funny. Um, did you know and, that was animated before the film was cast? I did know that, but thank you for bringing that up. I yeah, had so almost forgotten that. They went into production on that segment before they even started shooting the movie, just because of how long it was going to take. Yeah, a cute little thing that comes up if you're reading about this movie and it's totally true is that in the credits, Chuck Jones' yeah. name is the Chuck Jones stylized signature. He doesn't get just a plain credit. And the fact that they, it's Chuck Jones animation or at least Chuck Jones produced animation totally shows it's a great sequence. You would think you would, well, you would think that that would be the point where you go like, I am not watching this movie. They like, you know, like they got their cartoon mice now, like this, this is dumb. And it, I think one of the interesting things about it is that it's no more evil or graphic than an actual Tom and Jerry cartoon. And I think that's kind of on purpose. I think, yeah, it's, yeah, it's more good subtext, right? Right. If you ever watch a Tom and Jerry cartoon, it's the most horrific, violent thing you can imagine putting in front of a child. Yeah. And they play with that. And I think it's great. And the fact that they actually got Chuck Jones to do it again is one of those things that like, Righteous trash films are interesting because, again, you always want to find your own personal little treasure. But there's always that side of you that goes like, I really wish the world knew about this because of everything that went into it and how much talent went into it, how clever it is. And it's so much fun. That's the thing I'm most excited about this screening is just, I love this movie. I want to show this movie to people. Like, 
That's, yeah, it's, that's it's a great. It's a great film, and it, it, if you've seen the film before, like you know what we're talking about. Like, there's so many, there's so much good like '90s nostalgia built into this movie that at the time wasn't nostalgia, but like it's kind of fun to watch it as a record now. In addition to the fact that it's just like it's a fucking wild movie, and it's it's the kind of movie that like I wish I wish it was possible to still make a movie like this. Maybe it is. I don't know, but like I feel like I the, don't think the you balance could it strikes ironically. I don't think you could unironically make this film. Yeah, yeah. And the, the balance it's able to strike between like it's so in love with TV but also making fun of TV and it's it's just great. It's just it's like a joy to watch. It it's again, it's a brilliant movie. It's supposed to be a send up of television and it's actually kind of a love letter it to is. television. It's a love letter to television. And and they do it through Satanism, which you go like Fucking that's great. that's a perfect that's a Planet X movie right there. We it's a film that potentially mocks television that actually is a love letter to television and we're going to use Satanism to do it. Well, and um, you can tell it's a great Planet X movie because number one, it doesn't really work on paper. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode or more accurately an Amazing Stories episode, which Peter Hames directed an episode of. He did. Um, but when you try to explain it to people, it does sound like a crazy movie that's probably not very good. But in spite of all of those things, it super works when you sit down to watch it. Yeah, I and, and I love it. And and you have great actors doing great work. I think the one thing in the film that pulls you out of the film, the thing that doesn't work, the third act of this film is great because the film sort of, as we talked about earlier, it, it has a great pacing mechanism, right? And, and that's, sure. you're jumping through these channels and it works really well. And it builds to a third act that is kind of a fever frenzy of Spike and Roy just jumping through channels. And it's mm-hmm. great. It's yeah, fantastic. It's but in the middle of all of that, they perform in an entire salt and pepper music video. Oh man. The whole so fucking <laughs> song. And it's great and it's funny to watch, but it is not No, that's good. like the best sequence. Him wearing like the big head wrap and like He's the tracks. Like, yeah. Fuck yeah. And they're it in a factory that so just seems to produce nothing but sparks. <laughs> After about 30, 45 seconds of that segment though, I'm like there's not a lot of mileage to get out of this bit. I get they're basically fighting over a remote control at that point. We paid for salt and pepper. We're gonna watch salt and that's, pepper. <laughs> that's exactly it. And like even the box is like features original music and performance by salt and pepper. And you're like, I have no problem with it. It's great. I like salt and pepper. But then you go like, oh, we slowed the movie down at the most feverish part for an entire music video. Yeah, and that kind of bums me out i wish they would have edited that a little but it's not enough to make me not be completely in love and it's worth the price of admission to see john ritter in that outfit oh my <laughs> break dancing and stuff and it's or popping that, and voguing like that hat man it's that, delicious it is so <laughs> so good and john ritter he does that god he does that face through the whole movie where he's just like it's such a dad face. Like you can tell, like he knows what he's seeing is supposed to be cool, but he has no way of relating to it. So he's just like, Ugh. it's perfectly him. And like, I know this is a little bit saccharine. Like pur- pursed lips, open eyes. Just like, <laughs> it's just like, Oh, what am I doing? <laughs> it is. I know this is a little precious and like, I hope you won't begrudge this for me, but um, it was sad when he passed away. He was very young. Um, I, 
do sort of like that when he passed away, he was playing the father on a sitcom. After he didn't get a lot of work, good work for a while, he was on a successful TV show and he was playing a dad on a sitcom. And you go like, that is a guy who is just the butt of everyone's joke. He's John Ritter. He was the guy from Three's Company. He pretended to be gay on a 70s TV show to live with two hot women. And you go like, uh, the fact that he actually went out on top, even though it was kind of tragic, is, again, if you love TV and you love pop culture, you go like, well, he finally, he, he, he finally, he finally kind of got his, right? He, sure. he came around to where he needed to be. Well, we've, we've kind of hit all of the major points, but yeah. before we go, would you like to briefly say why you think this is a great Planet X film? Yeah, I think, uh, look, I think Stay Tuned is a great film. I think it's a film you ought to check out. I think it's a, in addition to being like a fun to watch movie, I think it is an interesting relic of a time in movie making and a time in television. And if you're at all, if you came up in that era or you're at all interested in that era, it is kind of like simultaneously a nostalgic romp through 90s TV and also like a send up of 80s and 90s pop culture in a way that is just like if it was just a series of jokes it wouldn't work but because it's a film with a great cast and a great script it totally 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 works it's really really fun and I'm really glad I got to see it when I was a kid I think I think it's the right I think it came out at the right time for for, for our age group so yeah I think, I think it's a great film I think you should watch it as a relic of the 90s I don't think I can add a lot to it I do think it's a great Planet X film because it's a big funny dumb concept that's made into a movie that's too smart for its own good by (laughs) a really talented group of people and those are typically the comedies that last and become cult films yeah and i think stay tuned over time has gotten reassessed a little bit not a ton but a little bit and so i think it's a great movie for planet x because i'm excited for people who have never seen it to maybe add a new favorite film to their catalog i think it's instantly uh lovable and that I think that makes it a good Planet X film. Yeah, I think I think you touched on something good there. It is a film that is both extremely intelligent and like and terminally stupid. And that combination is just so much fucking fun to watch. <laughs> that's how you get airplane people. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's exactly that's, like, I mean, that's how you get Mel Brooks movies. That's and this is this as good as a Mel Brooks movie? Eh, maybe 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 Dracula Dead and loving it. I don't know. Like, you know, but um, <laughs> But it's if you love if like I said if like we said if you like comedy if you like pop culture if you like movie making that again a little too smart for its own good please come down to Kunstler Brewery this Friday the twenty fifth of January correct probably. and uh, at eight o'clock our screenings are always free we would really like to watch Stay Tuned with you bring your friends and just imagine imagine it like a Friday night coming home from the video store we're gonna pop this one in the VCR yeah and uh, we're going to have a, have a hell of a time. So thank, thanks yeah. for listening to us talk about Stay Tuned. If you couldn't tell from my blathering, I am in love with this movie. I really yeah. am. Thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to us chat about uh, this awesome movie. Uh, as Blair said, you can come out and watch it with us live this Friday. Um, 
Yeah, uh, it's a great film. You ought to check it out. Uh, we will be back to the normal podcast uh, very soon with your uh, Righteous Trash movie title suggestions. Uh, we'll also be back with another one of these uh, now showings uh, in February to talk about our next screening, which is The Giver. Which I'm very excited about that. And I believe in the next few weeks, we'll have a, just a special episode to drop. Will we not? Yeah, yeah we sure will. So- Lots of fun stuff coming up. And again, if you ever want to know what we're up to, just go to our website, planetxcinema.com. There's screening information and podcast stuff, how to get in touch with us. You can even book us to come out and show a movie like Stay Tuned at your function. We're happy to do it. Yeah, so. bug, us on, uh, bug us on Facebook and Instagram as well. And if you leave a review for us in iTunes, be sure to include a movie title and we will do that on the, uh, on the regular pod. But uh, that is it for me today. Blair, are you good? I'm very good. Um, my name is Blair Hicks. I've been Drew Hicks. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks a lot, guys. We hope you come out and uh, stay tuned. Bye. <laughs>